Hello, and welcome to Unscripted, Conversations About Sexual and Domestic Violence, a podcast featuring employees and subject matter experts from domestic and sexual violence services and partner organizations discussing all aspects of interpersonal violence, plus solutions and resources for support for residents of Fairfax County. I'm your host, Kendra Lee. On this edition of Unscripted, I'm talking to Tony Zollicoffer, Division Director of Fairfax County's Domestic and Sexual Violence Services, also known as DSVS, and Ida Fernandez, Director of Loudoun County, Virginia's Department of Family Services. Today, we're discussing the history of the anti-violence movement and DSVS's journey towards showing up for the community. Tony, Ina, thanks for being here on Unscripted, Conversations About Sexual and Domestic Violence. Thank you for having me. Thanks for having me. Full disclosure. I'm a survivor of interpersonal violence, but until I came to work for Fairfax County's Department of Family Services and started supporting DSVS, I knew very little about this vast resource, or even that there was a movement to support survivors. But there is a movement, and that's a fortunate thing. It stretches back decades, and the Department of Family Services DSVS division has long been doing this work. I know you preceded Tony as DSVS's division director. What can you tell us about DSVS's beginnings? Wow. Well, again, thanks so much for having me on the show. Um, it has, DSVS has a, a very long history in Fairfax County, actually more than 50 years. Um, so I'll, I'll give a little bit of what it started with regards to um, or how it looks a little bit now and then give you a little bit more background of how we got here. So in 2008, the Domestic Abuse and Sexual Assault Services, or what was called DASA, moved from the adult mental health services in the community services board or CSB to what was then the office for women, um, which then became the office for women and domestic and sexual violence services, which was a really long name Mouthful. for a really small organization <laughs> at the time. <laughs> yeah. So DASA programs really um, included what was then known as the women's shelter, which is now um, Artemis house. Um, and at the very beginning, um, accepted women and children, but now uh, accept any, any, any victims of, um, of violence, regardless of gender or sexual orientation. It also included what was then called the Victim Assistance Network, um, which provided counseling and hotline and educational services, and then also the um, ADAPT, which was the Anger, Domestic Abuse and Prevention and Treatment Program. And then these were, were previously in the Community Services Board and the Office for Women focus solely more on policy issues. So issues affecting women and girls, including um, issues such as Title IX, increasing girls' participation in school technology, glass ceiling issues, et cetera. Uh, and so, but like I said, I mean, the, the history goes back 50 years um, with the start of the Rape Crisis Center in 1975, 76-ish. Um, the um, launch of the hotline, I believe in 1976, and then interesting thing to note is the hotline number that is used today is the original number. So it's got a long history in the community and um, one that's been consistent. Um, it's also interesting to note that the shelter, what was then the women's shelter, opened in 1977, which only by a few months was the second shelter uh, in the state of Virginia. Um, shelter opened up in Radford in the summer of 77. If I'm not mistaken, our shelter, the Fairfax County shelter opened up in October um, in a little house built in the 1950s located on the grounds of Lewinsville Presbyterian Church. Um, 
now there are multiple locations throughout the county um, and, you know, allowing folks um, to, to stay there with more independence and, and autonomy. And so a lot of uh, services that were independent sort of merged together. Uh, and then um, in, uh, let's see, I can't remember exactly, but the Commission for Women um, in 1977 is the one who really went to the state, to the board of supervisors, um, advocating for the, for the opening of a women's shelter or the shelter specifically for victims of domestic violence. So then you fast forward many, many years, um, to again, 2008. It's really started the journey for combining the services from the community services board and the office for women started around 2004, 2005, um, when we were realizing that based on budgetary issues, it was probably better um, to merge and bring um, forces together to really uh, take a look at the services in the county and provide very comprehensive services, looking from a family systems perspective. And I'm going to tell you that wasn't without its... Um, um, I'm going to say detractors, really, because what we ended up doing before um, what we know now as domestic and sexual violence services, um, services for those who um, cause harm were in this pocket over here, and victims, services for victims and, their, and, and families were in this pocket over here. But when we merged, we really, again, looked at it from a family systems perspective, um, because what we thought and what we believed was that we were there to make sure that families were safe because most of the time families were staying together for whatever their reason. And if we wanted to make sure the community was safe, we wanted to make sure families were safe. So that's a really brief history of where we are today in 2023. It's fascinating. I didn't know about the shelter being the second one in the state. That's really interesting. Mm -hmm. Thanks, uh, Ina, for that. So the mission now is work with communities to transform society's response to domestic violence, sexual violence, human trafficking, and stalking by challenging oppression, collaborating to inform policy, and providing those impacted by violence with equitable access to trauma-informed support, advocacy, education, and a space for healing. What was the mission back when they combined all the services in 2008? Do you oh remember? Oh my gosh, now you are... Um- <laughs> Oh, you know what? I, if I remember correctly, it was really, um, more looking at, um, how services were provided and making sure that again, we were, we were, um, affording the family as a whole the ability to, um, uh, to remain intact if that's what they, what they so choose. But it was also about, um, I'm going to say ensuring, uh, that, um, services and victims for families and children um, were were integrated because at that time it it was not integrated we wanted to make sure it was we were looking at not only um, autonomy for um, individuals and families but then also for the um, those of us who are providing these services as well okay so Tony this current mission came about during DSVS's most recent strategic plan overhaul. Talk to us a little bit about the new mission and, and, and how it was crafted. 
Yeah. Um, so first of all, again, thank you for having us uh, on this podcast. We are, I'm really excited to talk about this and I could talk about, you know, um, this topic all day long. Um, to set a bit of a historic context before we sort of talk through how DSVS landed at the, the mission that we have, you know, you kind of have to look at sort of some of the most notable movements that emerged between like 1954 and the early 2000s and some of um, those major things. And so sort of in this, this timeline, um, in like in 1954, we know that the civil rights movement emerged. Um, and then very shortly after that, the battered women's movement emerged in the 1960s, um, late 1960s, early 1970s, the black power movement emerged. And then in 1970, the women's rights movement um, emerge. And then like, you know, several years after that, a couple of decades after that, then we had the Violence Against Women's Act that was passed. And so all of this historic context is really kind of that way that you move towards, you know, what historically happened and then where, where we are now. Mm-hmm. And, and so before the battered women's movement, you know, domestic violence was considered and believed to be this personal matter that was held within the context of a married relationship between cisgendered heterosexual couples. Um, and the, the common thinking was that men caused harm, women experienced harm. And then intervention was mostly by faith and religious leaders with some psychoeducation that occurred. Um, the, the battered women's movement really changed all of that. And it changed the narrative and the response to domestic violence and started to introduce this idea that domestic violence is a crime and that it requires public intervention. And so law enforcement became involved. The, com- the coordinated community response, um, was elevated courts, professional counseling the emerging of shelters, and also the professionalization of the, the community response. In 1981, um, the Duluth model was, was introduced. And most of us know the Duluth model by the power and control wheel, which is an aspect of the, the Duluth model. And um, this model sort of in terms of the power and control wheel really researched and interviewed about 200 women to to do the power and control wheel or to come up with the power and control wheel. And so to give a little bit of a context, these 200 women were all white, middle class, and living in Duluth, Minnesota. And so this power and control wheel, which was really out of the interviews with the 200 homogenous women was really generalized to the movement and, and was what we used as contextually on how we, we talked about, um, violence within the context of an intimate partner relationship. And, you know, and so I, I wanted to give that bit of a context because it's really important to sort of talk through whose voices were not included. In our, in our current practices, right? They were based on these models that didn't include all people. Uh-huh. And so if we were sort of using models 
that didn't include the experiences of other people, then, then we were sort of using this one shoe that fits all when it didn't really speak to the experiences of, um, non-cisgendered, um, persons, um, persons of color, um, men who experience violence, violence in same sex relationships. And so we made these assumptions about who survivors were, the needs of the survivors, and what justice actually looked like for survivors. And so we started this journey in DSVS of really questioning about whether we were listening to the community in terms of our response to the community. And we started this path of the strategic plan and we did focus groups with our partners. We sent out a survey. And from that, we kind of decided that we wanted to change our path and to really be more responsive to the community and have the community to partner with us in terms of deciding our, our path forward. And so we started the, the strategic planning journey. To be honest, in the middle of the strategic planning process, we hit the pandemic uh -huh. and we saw on repeat the public murder of George Floyd. And so this convergence of a lockdown and watching the inhumane way that a person was being treated was really almost too much for the nation and gave DSBS the impetus in the room to pause and to really do a history lesson of the movement and a history lesson of where we were and what do we want to take from, you know, our history, but what do we want to do differently for the future? And so we came together, we got the community involved, we talked to survivors, we talked to others, and we together created this new mission, which really sets for us the North Star for how we want to show up in the community and how we want to take the best from our past, but also move in a, in a way that all people are represented and their voices are heard as we, as we craft um, new services and new responses to intimate partner violence. Okay. So the movement pushed DSVS forward. Has it pushed other agencies? Has it pushed the response to interpersonal violence forward for other agencies, not just Fairfax County? I mean, clearly I can speak generally and, um, I, you know, I don't, I don't pretend to know the nuances of all, um, agencies and organizations. I do know that again, the George Floyd murder did something for the nation in terms of a mobilization towards looking at our responses to community and coming together and seeing ourselves as a part of a larger community who needs to take care of each other. And so I do think that that path that we started around looking at equity and looking at equitable outcomes and differentiated responses based on the needs of the person that's sitting in front of us is something that many, many organizations took to heart and is incorporating into their work. You know, if you, if you do a, a quick Google search, many organizations now have equity statements. They have equity impact 
plans in place. They are looking at the nuanced needs of the communities that they serve and taking to heart that the response has to be based on what the community is asking for. So to to that point, I do think that there is a a movement. Um, And then, of course, when there is movement, there is always resistance to that movement. And so I, I think that the job or the task is to to move against the resistance to continue the work um, that we started. But I, I, I do think that the movement is moving in a different way. So where do you think it's going in the future? Not what has happened today, but your, your best guesstimate. Tony, I'm going to let you answer this first, and then Ina, I want your take on it. But ten, five years from now, 10 years from now, where do you see the movement having taken us? That's a really good question and a really hard question to answer. I can tell you about the influence that I hope that domestic and sexual violence services has on the community in Fairfax County and the influence that I hope that we can carry forward and our influence in the state and, and, and our partners that we work with. I believe that survivors want different things. And that our responses have to be based on what survivors tell us. Uh-huh. And as we all know, survivors for, and, and, um, Ina actually, you know, alluded to this earlier when she was talking. Not all survivors are interested in, in leaving their relationship uh-huh. for whatever reasons. Not all survivors are. Some are. Some are not. For those who are not interested in leaving their relationship or can't leave their relationship, they deserve to be safe and they deserve for us to be responsive to their safety needs. And at the same time, we also know that those who cause harm to a large extent are also survivors in their own right that they have also been victimized. And Mm -hmm. so our response has to take all of those factors into consideration and have a menu of options for people to be able to make their own safety needs and safety choices important. And so we've been doing work around accountability. Ina talked about our ADAPT program. We want to really be able to have a range of options for people in terms of accountability and response and what does restorative justice looks like and, and, and how do survivors want their safety and accountability needs met in the community. And so we have been working diligently to make sure that the, that the experiences of survivors are included in our responses to survivor safety needs and concerns. And the services um, really are, are responsive to that. Before you respond, Ina, I want to say to Tony, the accountability work is not just Fairfax, but statewide, because you're you're very modest in not talking about the work that you've been doing statewide to push forward accountability and that you won a HOPE Award last fall for the work that you're doing. I know you don't like to take credit (laughs) for it. You're just a cog in the wheel, but you got the award, and I think you spearheaded the movement getting toward accountability, getting pushed forward. 
Well, thank you for that. I don't know why you felt that you needed to say that out loud, but I appreciate it. (laughs) Because it needs to be noted. It does. does. And it goes back to the movements, right? And it's and it's because of people, whether it's individuals or groups of people, making sure that it, these issues, whatever the issue is, is constantly put forward. And as you said, you know, there's going to be resistance at each and every turn. There was resistance, you know, at, in the different movements. There was resistance when we brought um, the different um, uh, programs together into one. There will be resistance for for any number of reasons, and it's usually based on fear. Uh, but those of us who are in this work must continue to move on in the face of that resistance, right? And as communities change, as people change, as history changes, we need to make sure that we move with that while at the same time making sure that our um, communities are safe and that individuals in those communities are safe. And I remember when you asked me about our mission um, all those years ago when I was there, you know, two of the, the, the words that I remember were in there were um, responsibility and compassion, right? And so making sure that everybody, whether it's every person in the family, every person in the community, every person um, providing the services um, has responsibility for our community. But we also have to provide the service at the time, you know, we were looking at providing the services with compassion mm-hmm. uh, in that accountability piece and with the accountability. Uh, and so just making sure that that and as things change, as community, as um, populations change, as we um, we do more research and know more and, and are able to do better, we do. And that's the exciting thing about um, what what Tony and the folks there in, in, in Fairfax are doing now. It's taking what you know, including the community, because back in the day, I like to say when I was there, it was back in the day, you know, it, it was a year of how are we going to bring these services together? What does it look like? We brought community together. But again, communities change, things change, research changes, and it's it's like a shark, right? You have to keep moving. You've got to keep moving or, or you die. And so the fact that, you know, those of you who are there continuing to move the organization forward, the mission forward, changing the mission with what you know and what we know um, as a community, it's it's the exciting part of, of the work and of the movement. Absolutely. Well said. Absolutely. Yeah, well, I think we're going to end this epi- this edition of Unscripted Conversations about Sexual and Domestic Violence on that note. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening to our listeners. And thanks, Tony and Ina, for being part of this. If you or someone you know has experienced interpersonal violence, call the Domestic and Sexual Violence 24-Hour Hotline at 703-360-7273. Again, that's 703-360-7273 or visit fairfaxcounty.gov and search for domestic and sexual violence. To listen to other county podcasts, visit www.fairfaxcounty.gov slash podcast. Unscripted Conversations About Sexual and Domestic Violence is produced by the Fairfax County, Virginia government.